Hi there, and welcome to the Oompal.com podcast. I'm Oli, and for episode number 42, I'm bringing you a chat with Brian Levine. Brian is the host of PipesMagazine.com's radio show, which goes live every Thursday night. Go to PipesMagazine.com and check out Brian's very entertaining show. While there, see what else PipesMagazine.com has to offer. From a pipe store locator to listings of pipe events, pipe interview videos, and hey, even pipe babes. Check it out. This podcast is made possible by PipesAndCigars.com where they carry an extensive line of both new and estate pipes, an incredible selection of pipe tobacco, and just about everything else I want and need in the way of pipes and cigars. You name it, they got it, go get it, and let me know what you got. They have awesome customer service, you'll really enjoy the experience. The following podcast was recorded on January 6th, 2013. So my friend, sit back, grab a pipe, and stay a while. I hope you enjoy. On the line with us today, we've got Mr. Brian Levine. Brian, uh, welcome to the show, buddy. Thank you very much. Uh, Brian is uh, the guy over at PipesMagazine.com who does the radio show over there. It comes on weekly on Thursday nights. Isn't that right, Thursdays? Every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. And Brian is also the national sales manager for Brigham Pipes, wonderful pipe company out of Canada, and uh, Brian, just uh, let's start off by just talking about uh, your background in pipes because it is so um, so long, so massive, and and uh, just really cool history too. So, how did you first get into pipes in general? Uh, nine, you got to go back to 1994 when I was a uh, uh, I was a retail manager at the MGM Grand in Las Vegas. And the stores, uh, the the whole new big green one had just opened. Um, I was also the, I was a retail manager, but I was the only one in the retail department that smoked. And at that point, I had dabbled you know, with a corncob pipe, and I had dabbled with a couple of machine-made cigars, but I was put in charge of doing all the tobacco buying for the, uh, uh, for the gift shops and for the casinos. Uh, and then in a uh, fate, in a wonderful twist of fate, um, the retail department fired me because there was a shakeup coming down the road, and the casino wanted me to continue doing the program for the cigars and cigarettes for the for the VIPs or the high rollers. Uh, the casino helped put me into business for myself, providing them with uh, a service that managed their cigars and cigarettes. Oh, that's cool. What what was that like? What was what was your initial job like? And then and then once it changed, what was that like? What were some of the interesting ins and outs of of those daily dealings? Las Vegas is just a whole different world. It at any given moment, I could be talking to a customer in a retail store who is complaining that their postcard that they bought for seventy five cents might was bent or had a scratch on it and wanted to return it. And then I'd pick up the phone, and this actually happened to me. I got a phone call from the uh, from the high limit pit, saying that they needed to comp they needed to comp out a duffel bag for a customer, and it needed to be big enough to hold two million dollars in cash. Wow! Um, having never seen two million dollars in cash, I didn't know if it needed to be big enough for you know for an elephant or for a or, or 
for a small snake, so we figured out that <laughs> I didn't know what I didn't know what it was, but uh, that was that was the diversity of it. Um, oftentimes, I'd be uh, I'd be in one of the high limit pits, and I'd be filling the cigar humidor or filling the uh, filling the cigarette supply, and I'd turn around, and there'd be a guy sitting there playing blackjack three hands at a time for one hundred and twenty five thousand dollars per hand. Wow. Uh, yeah, so kind of took my meager little salary, and I thought, you know what, if I just knocked one of those chips off the top of one of your piles, I'd have, you know, like a whole year's salary for free. Yeah, yeah. That's wild. Uh, yeah, but that was that was Las Vegas. Um, saw some strange stuff. Uh, tell me, uh, what was one of the stranger things that you saw? Uh, it's a little graphic. So anybody that doesn't like uh, doesn't like graphic stuff, um, close your ears for a minute. But uh, got a call from our liquor store one night that there was that a gunshot had just gone off in front of it, and that security wanted us to clear the area. So I had to go over there, and turns out a uh, very intoxicated lady had come in that entrance of the hotel, stumbling, and had a double barrel shotgun underneath a coat or underneath her coat and had both barrels tucked under her shoulder, bumped into the wall and discharged both barrels of the shotgun into her shoulders and the remnants of her head and parts. Uh, and there was a silhouette of her on the wall where you could see the blast from it. And um, So, yeah, that was, that was probably the, the most disturbing thing. So what did it, uh, they they called you for what what kind of uh, assistance were you going to give them? I had the keys to close down the store, so I had to I had to close down those stores, secure those registers, and get the cast get our employees out of that area. And they couldn't shut the gates on the store without me over there. Wow! Yeah. So at least I was, they... I was majorly important to the entire operation of that. Event. <laughs> at least at least they weren't asking for another duffel bag. You know, and then you'd have to say, "Well, are we talking elephant size or small snake size?" Yeah, or half a woman size. <laughs> uh, I I like that that when you think about duffel bags, you you think in terms of elephant or small snake. I think that's I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. I like that. Well, I I still don't know. Two million dollars in cash could be twenties, ones, hundreds. Who knows? Yeah, uh, sure. Anyway, it turned out to be it was two large gym ba- two of our largest gym bags filled with uh, with stacks of hundred dollar bills. Wow, that's pretty. Uh, that's that's got to be kind of scary too. Uh, not to mention you've got you know people discharging double barrel shotguns. You know, in the well, in the, the lobby. And what surprised me the most was that six hours later after. You'd never knew if anything happened. I mean, there was fresh wallpaper, fresh carpeting up, and the and the crime scene was completely gone. I'm guessing they're probably pretty good at that. Uh, they are very good at uh, tearing apart parts of the hotel and casino and having it look completely new overnight. Wow. So, um, so Vegas, you know. Being as strange as it was, you started you started uh, or, or eventually got into managing cigars and cigarettes. But what about pipes? How did that play a role? I combined my business for uh, 
supplying the casinos with a local smoke shop that's uh, no longer there anymore. And they hired me. They gave me a deal for my little business, and I went to work for them. The uh, the then manager at the time wanted me. We sold some pipes. We sold some uh, some basic bulk tobaccos and the and the assorted tins. So he gave me a gave me a rusticated Bjarn as my first real pipe, and wanted me to learn how to smoke a pipe so I could talk to the customers about it. Uh, I'd smoke it maybe once once or twice a week and didn't really understand it. Uh, my real introduction to pipes came about a year later when I was hired to be the humidor manager for the Alfred Dunhill store that was opening up at the forum shops. Wow. And there, there was a little bit of discussion back and forth because it was a small store. Were we going to carry pipes? Um, we decided on carrying about three dozen and just the standard Dunhill tin tobaccos. And my first uh, Dunhill pipe was given to me by Richard Dunhill because when he came into town for the opening of the store, he wanted to make sure that the one person in the comp- in the store that smoked a pipe knew what a Dunhill pipe was like. And what was that like? What was, uh, what was his, you know, handing off that, that Dunhill to you? And, and talking to you about Dunhill Pipes. What was that whole experience like? Um, he was extremely passionate, obviously, about the families, about the family business and about the heritage of it. But at that point, he was also kind of on the, on the retiring side of his career. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, at that point, it was probably the best pipe I'd ever smoked. I was taught by him incorrectly how to load it for my style, mm-hmm. and that pipe just didn't ever really smoke well for me. Do you still have um, it? No, no. It uh, it went by the wayside uh, probably about two years later when I discovered what Costello's and old uh, old Camoys were supposed to taste like. But that yeah, that pipe I needed some expertise in how to properly break it in and I didn't get that. I needed to learn how to pack it correctly and I never did. So I it might have been part of that pipe. It was probably more me as operator error and uh not being shown the proper method to pack a pipe. Now, speaking of um packing pipes, I know you have a, a kind of a unique method that you've picked up from a couple different sources as far as how to pack and, and how to smoke a pipe. Would you mind sharing that with us? Yeah, it's, um, I, I think the biggest thing that I do is I keep the pipes as clean as possible. So my, my little bottle of Everclear and my little, uh, pipe cleaner dipped in it after each bowl. Uh, that to me is the real secret. Um, the packing of the pipe, I just do it in I do it in the standard thirds. So mm-hmm. I load the first, you know, the first third of tobacco that goes in. I pack it lightly down to halfway. The second load of tobacco goes all the way to the top, and then I push it down to about two thirds of the way down of the bowl. So I'm just leaving a third left over. Mm-hmm. And I'll give everybody a little secret right now that I haven't mentioned on my show yet, or I haven't told anybody really, um, after I do the the final third, which is just to get it up to the top, 
I dig around in the bottom of the tin of tobacco that I'm in, and I try to get some smaller pieces of tobacco to finish off that very top layer. And that kind of works for me like kindling. It starts a good, even, simple burn up on top. Uh, and then I also don't, I don't worry about if the pipe's going to go out a lot. I don't worry about smoking it all the way down to the bottom in one dry puff. And I don't, if it happens, it happens. And the people that say that they do it all the time, bless them. I think they're miracle workers. I can't figure it out. And I think I know what I'm doing. So <clears throat> if you, let, let's say you smoke, uh, you're about halfway done with the bowl. And you're like, you know what, it's bedtime or it's time to go do this, that, or the other. Um, do you trash what's left and then run that Everclear through there? If there is, and this is another thing that I haven't mentioned. Well, you're coming up with stuff that I need to talk about to my listeners. <laughs> um, if the pipe is, if there's still good tobacco in there and I'm still enjoying that bowl, I just leave it in there and I pick it up the next morning. And start it all, you know, light it up again. Um, I will oftentimes, especially when I'm on the road and I don't have time to pack a couple of bowls or pack pipes during the day, mm -hmm. at night before I go to bed, I will pack three or four pipes for the next day. I'll do the charring lights on all of them, get them all charred and tamped down and even and get them ready to go. And then the next day, I'll just pull them out of my pipe bag like I'm, like I'm firing off, uh, you know, firing off bullets. It doesn't bother me. In fact, I think in some cases it makes the tobacco a little better if you do the charring light and then let it sit overnight and then fire it up again the next morning. Oh, that's interesting. I've never heard that before. I like that idea. Yeah, don't tell anybody I said that. I won't tell anybody. Okay. <laughs> um, when you worked at the Dunhill shop, um, I'm sure you, you got quite a few big-name people coming in there. Did Did you have regulars that were... Um, coming in there, you worked at two different Dunhill shops, right? Yeah, when we uh, when my wife decided that we were moving back to back from Las Vegas, we were going to go back to Los Angeles, um, which she, in hindsight, she was absolutely correct. Uh, Dunhill was nice enough to transfer me to the store in Beverly Hills, right on Rodeo Drive. Um, if you've ever seen the movie Pretty Woman, you can see the the store and the when uh, when she when they pull up in the uh, Lotus in the first scene when they pull up in front of the hotel the Dunhill store is right across the street from the hotel. Oh, cool. Uh, that's where I met, uh, in particular, Lalo Schifrin. Uh, God, there was a whole handful of guys on the cigar side. There was there were more celebrities. I had met Milton Berle. Uh, met. Uh, Dirk Benedict from uh, Battlestar Galactica and the A-Team. Absolutely one of the friendliest, kindest guys you'd ever meet. Uh, Jason Priestley, who was in Beverly Hills 90210, was a uh, not a regular uh, cigar or pipe customer, but he loved giving Dunhill lighters as gifts to people. Hmm. Um, had a real fun... Here's, here's one of those stories that... Uh, you never judge a book by its cover because I'm standing downstairs at the entrance to the store where we had a greeter position and in walks this decent looking younger guy wearing a Dodgers t-shirt and jeans 
with this beautiful Barbie doll wife, and I greet them, and they're speaking to me in in an accent that I figured was Australia or New Zealand, and we got started talking when I was talking to him about baseball because the Dodgers had just been bought by uh, Fox Corporation and Rupert Murdoch. Uh, to shorten the story, about 45 minutes later, I've now got this. The the wife had picked out about um, $12,000, $14,000 worth of Dunhill clothing and accessories for her husband, and I was getting a little concerned about, how are these, is this a real sale? What's going on with this? Um so I ask him if he's ready to if he's ready to to pay for all this and he says, Sure, and he pulls out and it's the only time I've ever seen one. It was a black American Express card. Mm-hmm. And it was Rupert Murdoch the third. Oh it wow. Was, yeah. It was Rupert's son. So never judge a book by its cover because you'll uh you'll see a whole bunch of stuff. Um That's why remember standing on the uh Standing at the entrance to the store, and up pulled Larry Flint in his uh, convertible Rolls Royce with his that had been converted so that he could get his uh, gold-plated wheelchair in and out. Was it really uh, gold-plated? That's what they said. I didn't run up with a. I didn't run up and hit it with an assayer's mark to see. Metal uh, Wow! I got. In, I had. I had Jerry Lewis and asked me to come up to his house and set up a humidor that he bought from us for uh, for his son-in-law. So I got to go up to Jerry Lewis's house and set up a humidor there. That's wild. Who uh, were, were were there some? Um, I guess once you were out in Rodeo, I'm, I'm guessing that Vegas was more of uh, you know people passing through, right? Vegas was definitely more people passing through, but. I when I sold cigars. I tried to sell cigars to Michael Jordan, but the president of Dunhill at that time, of the Dunhill retail stores, gave him the box of cigars. Uh, Stephen Tyler and Joe Perry from Aerosmith came into the store and bought cigars. Um, you know, celebrities were, and I guess part of it's growing up. Growing up in Los Angeles, there are very few celebrities that really trip my trigger. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I used to see them on a somewhat regular basis. Yeah. Uh, but some of them were extremely nice. I and mean, uh, one of my favorite guys who's no longer with us was Eddie Fisher, uh, Carrie Fisher's father. Okay. He was He was just a really appreciative, sweet, older man who... Every time I'd bring cigars for him when he was at the casino, he'd always ask me to come back later and sit down and smoke one with him. And on a couple occasions, I got I was available to do it. Wow, how uh, cool. But, yeah, celebrities are... Yeah, and then you'd run into the ones that aren't so nice. Um, took me a long time to watch a Tom Cruise movie. <laughs> what um, You want to give us an example of uh, of what happened there? I was working at Disneyland, and he just about ran me over twice with his car. No kidding. Uh, yeah, he just had no, absolutely no idea that there were other people on this planet besides him. Uh, yeah, he just wasn't, he just thought his, he, like I said, it took me a long time to watch a Tom Cruise movie. 
So yeah. when you were when you were at the Dunhill shop in Rodeo, off Rodeo, what um were there any locals that that we the listeners would know that you could say, oh yeah, this guy always bought uh, this kind of pipe tobacco or something like that? I honestly don't remember. Um, the pipe tobacco side of the Dunhill stores business was relatively small. Um, and then there was one guy, uh, still a friend of mine, Peter Freistack, who had been at that store since the 70s. Uh, he really took care of a lot of the tobacco customers. Uh, a lot of the regular tobacco customers just had a standing order for you know a pound of this or a pound of that or six tins of this to be delivered each week. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we did a lot of stuff by courier. But I really, I really don't remember anybody in particular liking a specific blend. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can tell you there were three guys that every time new Dunhill pipes arrived, and Lalo Schifrin was one of them. The other two guys were just wealthy Beverly Hills people. Uh, those three guys got phone calls before those pipes went up on the shelf. Oh, really? Wow. And, uh, in most cases, we'd get... Uh, we we get two dozen to three dozen pipes in, and between those three guys, they'd buy twelve to eighteen of them, and then the rest would go on the shelf. Wow! Uh, Christmas pipes would come in. We had standing orders from customers for specific numbers, or a you know just automatically wanting a Christmas pipe. Uh, but at that point, we were also just a customer of Lane Limited for the pipes. So. Uh, we didn't get to cherry pick the pipes either, which kind of bothered me. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was also there was a really cool older local smoke shop up at the about two blocks up and one and a half block over called Kremers, and it's on Little Santa Monica. And I learned a lot about the rest of the pipe world from those guys. Uh, Tell me about that. That, that was just a uh, it was. Kremer Smoke Shop, it's still there. I think they provide, uh, I think they still provide some of their proprietary blends on uh, through a, uh, through mail order uh, over the telephone. Uh, but I always remember walking in there and just being fascinated by the pre uh, the pre Cuban embargo La Corona cigar display that had six boxes of cigars that had been perfectly humidified and maintained since the since they received that pre embargo. Wow. Uh, but you you'd go in there and they were the they were the store that would have the pictures of every celebrity that's ever come in there. Uh, at one point they were the ones that George Burns was buying cigars from. Uh, they were the ones that Bing Crosby would swing by and pick up some tobacco or look at pipes or Bing would go down to the original tinderbox in Santa Monica and pick up pipes and pick up tobaccos. So between Kremers and the original tinderbox in Santa Monica, that's where I really got into all the history of the local pipe smokers. Uh, yeah, and then you could have gone, if you went over the hill into the San Fernando Valley, Gus's smoke shop that's gone, been gone for 10 years or so. He was kind of like the San Fernando Valley version of Kremers. How do you spell Kremers? I believe it is actually K R E M E R S. 
Cool. Now, tell me a little bit more about um, some of your other jobs in the in the pipe world, because after those two, you went from Dunhill and in, in Vegas, Dunhill Shop in Vegas, straight to the Dunhill Shop in off of Rodeo Drive. What what happened next? I got lucky enough to get hired by uh, Hulk O'Roar, who was part of the. Uh, uh, a wholesale importer distributor that was owned by the Weinfeld family and Steve Frank. Uh, and Steve Frank was the sole uh, descendant of Wally Frank, of the old Wally Frank stores and the Wally Frank catalog. Wow. So now I've gone from retail to getting really lucky and being in a wholesale environment where there was another ton of history. Um, we were, at that point, we were the importers for Peterson, Nording, Costello, Joby, GBD, Camoys, Big Ben. Please, I hope I don't forget anybody else. Um, we were also the ANC Peterson importer and distributor in the United States, so the Doby Foursquare blends that are gone. Uh, we were also the Peter Stokeby International uh, importer and distributor, so we had all those bulk tobaccos. Uh, again, just a, a man. Once I, you know, I thought I'd learned it all and thought I'd seen it all, but then when I got hired at Holco to kind of be the pipe and cigar guy in customer service there to help both the help both the retailers and any of the sales reps, um, then. They told me to go on the back end of the scratch and dent bins, which were two large pallet-sized boxes of pipes. So dig around in there and pick out pipes that you want and clean them up and and smoke them. So I went from having a, a Dunhill, a Stanwell, and I think a Bjarne at that point to having probably about 36 pipes that were all you know, just great old pipes. Wow. So Halka was... was... <clears throat> Excuse me, that was in uh, California as well, right? Chatsworth, California, the adult film capital of the world at that point. <laughs> so you learned a lot there. <laughs> well, I had grown up in the San Fernando Valley, and I knew what went on in Chatsworth, so it didn't surprise me when you you know, walk, we'd go to the fast food place for lunch, and there'd be a platinum blonde looking a little scuzzy, and three guys that had... You know, it looked like they hadn't bathed in a week or two. We knew that they were just either waking up and getting ready to go on a set or had been on a set or who knew. Yeah. Wow. So um, what do you feel like were the biggest things that you learned at Halco? Oh, just the the breadth of, of pipes and the difference between uh, the really the difference between an Italian factory, a uh, French factory, and an English factory. And uh, uh, give just, me give me some ideas about what that means to you. First thing it took me a little bit to get used to was an acrylic stem on, on an Italian pipe uh, because they are just super hard. And it took me a little bit of time to understand that. The French... At that point, my my first impression was of all the Boots Choquins was they were very much into the styling and the shaping 
and then there was the English factories, which was that was still when Cadogan was making Kamoys and Joby and GBDs in England and in France, and um, the uh, the English pipes were just more really good quality utilitarian pieces that weren't they weren't so much worried about the shape and and the finish of it they were worried about the engineering of it so that was my my real first impression was engineering in England style in France and then Italy was kind of a homogenized version of both of those and then Eric Nording and his pipes Besides the fact that Eric's one of my favorite people on the planet, um, and I love kissing him on his bald head every time I see him, hmm. uh, the freehands and understanding what was going on in Denmark and realizing that <laughs> I didn't like freehands. They were too big. So how um, how do you feel like that has changed over the years, or has it? Have, have those kind of stayed basically the same, or have those things changed or melded? Well, there, there is no more, uh, there's no more English factory pipes. So that's kind of changed because they've been forced to move to Italy and France for those, for those brands. And I, and the French just don't do things the way the English did. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to, uh, it, it's not, it's neither good nor bad. It's just the fact they don't do things the way the English did. Mm-hmm. Um, the Italians do things a little bit more similar to me the way to the way the English did. They've adopted more of that make sure the engineering is correct kind of idea on some of the lines of pipes. Um, I think the big thing that people the the big thing that bothers me now, and this is also with Brigham, um, we since we don't own and operate the factory and there's a lot of brands that don't own and operate the factory, they contract with those factories to make pipes to their specifications. Mm-hmm. You've got to, we have, we as pipe manufacturers or pipe brand owners have to keep an eye on what the factories are doing. And if you're not keeping an eye on what the factories are doing, then you're, you're going to, your brand is going to go astray from what you want it to be. Um, but I think it's kind of homogenized, and that's that's one of the things that the Internet and the global world has done. I mean, here's, here's the two of us. We can do these little uh, – we can do these little podcasts, and then all of a sudden we're hearing from people halfway around the globe saying, hey, we love, love and look forward to each one of your podcasts. Mm-hmm. So now it's taken the American perspective – our perspective and sent it out to uh, Eastern Europe, Asia, and a lot faster than it ever would have. So I I think it's now more, um, let me see if I can sum this up smartly. Um, the styling of each pipe brand is more brand specific than it is country of origin specific now. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. So having said all that and knowing that you have you know such an amazing um history with pipes prior to let's say um this globalization effect that we just talked about what would be your your top 3 um old brands 
as far as a uh, um, a machine made pipe. And, oh, and and absolutely, absolutely, hands down, easy. Prior to two thousand two, I would have said that Costello is the best pipe out there in the world. Period. Um, I still own a couple of the Costellos that I pulled out of those damage bins. Those things smoke so sweet and smoke so reliably well that it's unbelievable. And they're sea rocks, so they're ugly, and you can carry them around and beat on them. And when I go to Disney World. My Sea Rock is usually the one that's in my fanny pack being banged around all day long and being pulled out for smoke breaks. Um, post-2002, which is when I really got a, I got an eye-opener into the estate pipe market and really started learning about what was going on before I got involved in pipes, um, Barling and Sassini. Add, add Barling and Sassini into that Costello range. Into the old, the old factory stuff. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, hands down. Um, to this day, I still look around at pipe shows and keep my eye out online for really good quality Barling, Sassini, older, uh, yeah, obviously family era Barling, Sassinis, um, older Camoys are just as good as any pipe that came out of England. Um, Older Costellos, just absolutely hands down, smooth, sweet smokers. Okay, how about um, factory-made pipes this year? Like right now, what would be, say, your top three? Um, I hate to I hate to sound biased. I really haven't seen what's going on out in the factory pipe world in two years. I will say that we at Brigham. Uh, in the two years that I've been here, I think we've monitored the quality better than we ever have before. So the the quality and reliability of a pipe that gets to the Brigham consumer uh, is better than what it was four or five years ago. We've spent a lot of time talking back and forth with our with the factories that make pipes for us. Yeah, you got to make sure and. Pay attention to this. Pay attention to that. No, we're rejecting. I might get six, seven hundred pipes shipped to me, and I might reject forty of them for flaws that are just unacceptable to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think when you look at the standard big three of Savinelli, Peterson, and Stanwell, Mm -hmm. I think they're all making really good, reliable, quality pipes. Um, I think, like with any of the factory-made pipes out there, you're going to get some really good ones that are just a really good piece of wood, and they're going to work really well for you, and then you're going to get some that may not be, that may not work so well for you, and that to me is the difference between a factory-made pipe and an artisan or high-grade. There's no rhyme or reason to why that pipe works well for you or doesn't work well for you. On a factory made, you're you're kind of running the gambit there. Mm-hmm. But on an artisan pipe, once you know how that artisan makes a pipe or a high grade guy makes a pipe, every one of his pipes is going to work for you right from the start. How did you get from Halco to North Carolina? <laughs> well. 
Uh, two moving trucks and a couple of airplanes. <laughs> um, that was your next big step, right? Yeah, Halco got bought by the Spanish, uh, the Spanish tobacco company, Tobacco Lara de España, and they got merged with Have a Tampa, the machine-made cigar company in in Florida. Uh, in that merger. The Halco Have a Tampa Tobacco Lara Company offered me a sales territory, so I went to upstate New York where we had some family, took that territory up in upstate New York and New England, where uh, then I got to hang out at stores like LJ Peretti, Levitt and Pierce, uh, the David P. Ehrlich store before it closed down in Boston, um, uh, Mel Feldman's The Smoker in Albany, New York. Uh, I was one of the few people that Mel actually liked and would let come in the store and talk to him. And, well, it wasn't really talking to him. It was listening to him. Hmm. Um, but then uh, literally four days after the moving truck had arrived in upstate New York, we got the word that the French tobacco company Seda and Tabacalera, the Spanish company, were merging. So that meant that Consolidated Cigar with the Sutliff Richmond Pipe Tobacco Factory was merging with Holoco and Have a Tampa. So that, now I'm worried. Um, anyway, long story short, they, they merged the companies. They were no longer interested in importing anything else that they didn't make. So we started to see uh, companies jettison, and then we were and then we were telling all these old Holoco brands were starting to move off into other places. Peterson went to Ashton. Eric Nording ended up with a couple of different importers for a while before he settled on Arango Cigar. Uh, uh, here's a fun one for you. Oliver Twist, the little Danish chewing tobacco product that has been in smoke shops for years and has been around for 205 years. Uh, I used to sell it when I worked for Hulco and now, starting January 1st, Brigham USA is the importer and distributor in the States for Oliver Twist, and that was primarily from our relationship going back to Holco. Wow. Um, but then, anyway, what happened was uh, Stokeby knew that they were no longer going to be able to use uh, the new Altadis company as their distributor, so instead of finding another distributor like Holco, they decided to open up their own office, and uh, Peter kept calling me saying, "Hey, don't do anything, don't do anything. I want, I want to have you in our office in uh, in Charlotte, North Carolina. Have you ever been there before?" No, uh, but the idea of not having to shovel another winter's worth of snow in upstate New York sounded really good in mid-April when the snow was finally starting to melt. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, I came down here in June of 2000 and started working for Eric as the uh, pipe tobacco guy in the office. And the rest of the office and staff was kind of focused on the uh, roll-your-own-cigarette side of it. Uh, then in, by 2001, I'd spent a lot of time at the pipe shows and spent a lot of time on the road with Peter. And that's when I really got my tobacco knowledge Um and then from getting the getting the tobacco knowledge from Peter, who at that point was a third-generation tobacco manufacturer, and being at pipe shows and just 
listening and watching and learning everything that was going on on the pipe side of the business. Um, that's why I always tell people I really didn't learn anything about the pipe and tobacco world. I'd been in it for about five, six years, but by 2002, I think I had a pretty good understanding. And you had uh, something to do with Stokeby's proper English blend, right? Yeah, we. Um, I had I had my hands in about uh, seven or eight pipe blends and one cigarette tobacco blend in particular. Um, the uh, Peter Stokeby Turkish Export cigarette tobacco that's still available today. That was my variation of a blend that. Orlick was making in Denmark for uh, for a niche market. We slightly tweaked it for an Americanized taste, and it became a really popular seller for uh, for Stokeby here. Um, Proper English was in response to uh, the company that owned the rights to the Sassini name. We were making Balkan Sassini for them, and they went bankrupt twice um, we didn't own the rights to that blend but we did we were making it for them so the proper English is a slightly tweaked variation of the Balkan Sassini that had been around since Balkan Sobrani left the market hmm okay interesting uh, it was uh it's still, I think it's still one of their bigger, one of their bigger selling blends. Um, it's You're not a big English I... smoker yourself, though, right? No, and it was painful for me to <clears throat> taste test it. <laughs> oh, that's good. I, I love but English hey, blends. Listen, here's, an, here's another thing that I'll never tell my listeners. Uh, <laughs> at one point, working for Stokeby, I had to describe vanilla-flavored Cavendish 21 different ways in a Peter Stokeby catalog because we literally had 21 different vanilla-based Cavendish bulk blends at that point. Wow. And I'm not an aromatic fan either, so that's why I told people on my show and I tell people all the time, hey, I appreciate the offer of a sample of your favorite blend, but... Man, I had six, seven solid years of taste testing tobaccos and trying this and trying that and giving it, you know, four or five different kinds of pipes to figure out how it would work. And you can't just taste test it off of the first two puffs out of one pipe. You've got to try a couple of ounces to see if it really is something that you think you can introduce into the market and sell. And then all the existing blends, I had to understand what I was I couldn't just read the descriptions and tell people what they're going to taste. I really wanted to try it and understand what they were going to taste. So I had my thrill of taste testing stuff. So having said all that, you're a Virginia guy, a Virginia Perique. That's it, Virginia Periques, and then I uh, substitute in a little straight Virginias in the morning during the warmer weather. <clears throat> what are you? What are a couple of your go-to um, tobaccos? Wouldn't you like to know? Okay, I'll tell you. All right, I'll tell you. Um, I am a huge fan of McClellan's product. I think McClellan's Virginias and their Virginia Periques are just, they just work absolutely correctly for me. Um, 
McCraney's Red Ribbon, which is a Virginia a Virginia small batch that uh, that McClellan makes for them. That is my breakfast of champions every morning during the summertime when it's when the humidity's up and the temperature's up. That's my breakfast. Um, Esoterica. I'll switch gears a little bit. Esoterica makes Tilbury. And Tilbury, with about two years of age on it, is a really good, sweet, straight Virginia that I enjoy as a substitute to the signature McClellan Virginia taste, mm-hmm. which some people call ketchup. I call it KC Masterpiece Barbecue Sauce. <laughs> Jokingly. Um, that's one of my standbys. And then while I was working for Stokeby, and this was... Anybody that anybody that saw me smoking a pipe while I was working for Stokeby, it was more than likely not a Stokeby blend, but an Orlick product that I was smoking. It was probably a Scudo. Um, and when when we were when I took the tour of the factory in Denmark, uh, they were kind enough to make sure because they knew of my appreciation of the Scudo. Uh, they were kind enough to make sure that they were cutting a scudo the day I was there. Uh, <laughs> funny, quick story for you about tobacco aging. We're in the factory. They're running this machine, and this is the machine that came from Copes and was given to A&C Peterson to cut a scudo. And this machine, it, it looked like something right out of a Jules Verne novel, but it was fed the spools and ran it through the cutter, and these little discs would fall out. So while we're in the factory, they give me a small little, uh, you know, six inch by six inch cardboard box, and I shove it under the feed of where it's dumping discs out. So I get about a pound of raw escudo discs out of this machine. I am so excited and so thrilled by the fact that I got to see the. Yeah, it's it kind of like watching the manna come right out of heaven to me. <laughs> like, I don't know how else to explain it, but. I found the fountain of youth, and here's the yeah, you know, here's the spigot for it, and you can turn it on and off anytime you want to. Yeah. So we do the factory tour. Later that night, we're all going out for dinner. I take about six, eight discs, and I shove them in my pocket. And after dinner, I'm gonna smoke a scudo that I just got off the factory floor. And I, yeah, I rub it out. I pack my bowl, and I go to light it. And oh my God, it was terrible. Yeah. It yeah. was absolutely foul, harsh, hot, nasty, bitter. Oh, God, was I upset. So I didn't say anything to anybody, but I just politely let the pipe go out after about 20 minutes of trying to get it to work and, you know, went back to smoking something else and take the box of tobacco, put it in a, in a plastic bag, seal it up, and I'm going to take it home and play with it and, you know, maybe whatever, I'll show it to people. Anyway, I let it sit for about a month before I went back in there to play with it, and I noticed that the smell had changed. Uh, And sure enough, what had happened was that tobacco was really fresh, and it just needed some time to dry down and to age a little bit, Mm -hmm. and it started to get good. So then I took that whole pound of tobacco and found an old, cleaned out a mayonnaise jar, and put it in the mayonnaise jar and let it sit for six months, and oh, thank God I was so happy, because after about six months, it was back to the same escudo that I loved. Wow. Wow, that's interesting. I didn't realize that um, there would be that big of a difference so quickly. 
there is a dramatic difference and anybody that's buying a tobacco from a uh, from one of the European uh, one of the European blenders before that the fastest that tobacco can get from Denmark Germany or England to the United States and get to the consumer it's it's literally a six-month time is about as fast as it can happen uh, so those tobaccos that we're buying off the store shelves from those manufacturers, you've, all, you've almost automatically got six months' worth of aging in the tin or aging in the box or the, the, the bulks have been aging for six months before they've gotten to you. Yeah, at least. That's a good point. It's a, it's a huge difference in taste from fresh out of the factory. So... From, let's see, now we've got you to North Carolina, where... Now Stoke- I'm in North Carolina, and this this is where the fun begins, because I've, I've now learned how to blend, I'm now learning about raw components, I'm out in the pipe show world, and I meet J.T. Cook, and he and I click instantly, because my, his his musical loves and my dad's musical loves. I mean, they're both hippies. One's on the East Coast, one's on the West Coast, and I understand instantly, and we just kind of connect. And he's really the one that taught me about what I was enjoying about Barlings and Costellos and those old factory pipes and really learning the ins and outs of pipes. Uh, But 2002 is also when I began the Disney collection. So, um, okay, first of all, Disneyland or Disney World, which one's your favorite? Oh, absolutely, hands down, the one I worked at, the one that Walt walked in, the only one that Walt ever walked in, Disneyland is the original, everything else is an artificial sweetener. <laughs> I haven't gone to or, Disneyland yet. so I'll... Or as I call it, Disney, Disney World's just a very big prosthetic. Uh, but it's still. Uh, I'll go there. And you want to? Let's go tomorrow. I'll be there. <laughs> uh, um, I'm sitting here, and there's a screensaver of the Epcot uh, spaceship Earth at Epcot for uh, decorated for the Flower and Garden Festival on my computer. Yeah, I'm. I'm a huge fan of. Uh... Of Disney World, that's all I know. Though I've never been out to the uh, to the West Coast, even. So um, I will have to get out there one of these days and visit Disneyland and, and see what all the uh, see what all that's about. So before, the, the one thing that I let, go the ahead. one thing that I want everybody to understand the the difference to me between the two parks. Um, Disney Disneyland was where they had a, they had space issues and they kept adding stuff and kept trying things and they kept cramming things in. So it's a it's a much tighter, more compact show with a whole bunch of variations, and then there's a whole bunch of original 50-year-old tweaks that are, you know, that are still there. Um, Disney World is where they had an idea of building this massive thing that was going to be more than just a park. So it allows, when you're in the Magic Kingdom, it allows you to see the outside world. When you're at Disneyland, you can't see outside of Disneyland. You are there. It's that tight of a show. Interesting. Um, 
And do you do you go to both regularly, or do you pretty much just go to Disneyland? No, uh, being on the East Coast now and being a nine and a half nine hour drive from Disney World, uh, I'm at Disney World is more much more frequently. Um, when I get out to the West Coast, it's usually just for work or to visit family. And I think the last time I was at Disneyland was. 2008, uh, as opposed to Disney World, where and the, the trade show was there last summer, so I was down there three nights during the trade show. And you used to work at Disneyland a, a long time ago, right? Yeah. yeah, worked at Disneyland from uh, June of 86 to September of 1990. And so what started you on your collection of um, Disney... Pipes and, and Tabacchiana? I started it purely as a snub to the people that were collecting straight grain, high-end whatevers, because mm-hmm. I couldn't afford them. I couldn't afford to have a really high-grade pipe collection because I was the you know, the sole the, the sole breadwinner or the primary breadwinner for a wife and two kids, and uh, you know, couldn't afford to buy Danish handmaids or this, that, and the other, and couldn't afford to put out a collection of them. And then I saw a couple of Disney World pipes at at a pipe show, and I thought, well, that, yeah, those will be cute. They were ten, twenty bucks each. Um, and then the idea started building that what I would do is I would go to these pipe shows, and instead of showing my collection of high grade straight grains, I'd show my collection of goofy pipes or Mickey Mouse pipes or whatever. Yeah. And it it just not it just started as a snub, and I didn't realize what it really turned into was a really firm statement on the politically correct uh, dramatic swing in in society, because these pipes were sold at Disneyland and at Disney World up until like 1989, and then 13 years later, smoking was restricted to designated areas, and the only place that tobacco products were sold on Disney property was in the hotel gift shops under the counter. Yeah. Uh, And if anybody wants to see the collection, the the entire collection is on Facebook. It's the Disney Tobacchiana Collection. I created a fan page for it because fan pages on Facebook are a hell of a lot cheaper than uh, websites are. Yeah, that's very cool. So, do you still actively collect for that for that group? Yeah, if there's a pipe that uh, I've now got fifty fifty Briar pipes that were stamped Disney World or Disneyland. Um, the one that I'm smoking right now is my Disneyland pipe that was made by that was made in the Sheraton factory in the 1960s. Um, so if you hear my lighter going, that's me puffing. Uh, if there's one that fits the collection that doesn't look like something else that I have and I can get it for the right price, I'll take it. If it's something super special, I have to beg my wife to allow me to, you know, like, you know, go to the blood bank and donate red platelets or you know, harvest a <laughs> kidney or something, but I'll go after it and I'll go after it full force. And if you're in my way, I'll stomp you <laughs> uh, until, until we reach the point of budget where my wife doesn't know. Um, a year and a half ago at the Richmond pipe show, there was a guy selling two, uh, 
two pipe boxes that just had Walt Disney World stickers on them. I paid 20 bucks a piece for those pipe boxes just because they had a Walt Disney World sticker on them, and I'm pretty sure they came out of the uh, out of the tobacco shop on Main Street at Disney World. Well, and that very was cool. just just the empty cardboard boxes with a little sticker that said Walt Disney World, not even screen printed or anything. And there was a write-up in P&T all about your collection, correct? Yeah, uh, Pipes and Tobacco Magazine did it in fall of 2005. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I curse Chuck Stanion every day when I have to pay high dollar for a pipe, because at that point I was buying them on eBay regularly for 10 to $25, and then literally three to four weeks after the article was out, they went up to 100 to $120. Wow. Uh, and they stayed up there for a good six months to two years. Um, the the really touching part of the community of us pipe smokers is that I had a couple of guys come up to me at pipe shows or pipe retailers that dealt in estate pipes that would give me pipes. Even though they knew that they could probably sell it for 60 80 to to $100, they would give me their Disney World pipe or whatever it was, and they want me to have it as part of my collection because they knew how much I appreciated them. Wow, that's very cool. So those pipes, they'll never go anywhere. They'll stay with me. I don't sell any of my Disney pipes anyway. I don't care. Yeah, yeah. if you walked up to me with $1,000 and it was one of the ones I didn't really have a huge fascination with, you could have it, but... Mm. If you walked up to me with a thousand dollars and wanted to you know, wanted to buy one of my Disney World pipes for a thousand bucks, you'd also need some psychiatric help. But. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I think we've we've made it almost up until um, your work with Brigham, but not quite. I think we left out maybe SmokingPipes.com. Yeah. Which, after um, well, after six years at Stokeby, I went to work for the what was then the RTDA, the Trade Association. Uh, and managed the uh, trade show floor and dealt with the exhibitors there. So I got to know a whole bunch of people that owned companies and spent a lot of time talking to cigar companies. Uh, used to go into the cigar <laughs> into the cigar company smoking my pipe. <laughs> that hmm. looked at me kind of funny, but um, I was. Uh, Politically, I, I became a politically unaffordable luxury when the S-chip tax hit the cigar and pipe world in uh, January of 2009, and in, in February or in October of 2008, I got laid off from the trade show. Um, about ten months later, I got a phone call from Sykes at uh, at Smoking Pipe saying, "Hey, we want to, you know, what are you doing? Where are you? We'd love to talk to you about what you're doing." Um, and we uh, we met. We talked a couple times. I went out and visited with him. And in October of that year, I started as the general manager there, and really fell in love with. Him. And that was really the first time that I got to uh, got to see a lot of high grade and artisan pipes up close used to just thoroughly enjoy the really good estate batches of pipes that would come through. Um, if there was a, uh, a widow was sending in her husband's pipes, I could almost get to the point where I could yeah, uh, forensically recreate his life 
by looking at the pipes in his collection. Um, one of the Kamoys that I have is from a dentist, guy that was in the Army in World War II, stayed in, got his, uh, got his medical degree as a dentist in the Army, and then stayed stationed in Europe for 20 years and used to go uh, twice a year to London for his vacation time and would have just an incredible eye for quality pipes, and he'd spend his time in the London pipe shops buying pipes. Wow. Uh, so that was that was a lot of fun. It was a lot of work too because that's a big organization, and I had a lot of people that I had to had a lot of people keeping an eye on me and trying to keep me out of trouble. And I was supposed to be doing the same for them, but in most, most situations, they were keeping an eye on me. Uh, it wouldn't be wouldn't be uncommon for. A shipment to arrive from Japan, and here comes a dozen brand new Tokotomi pipes, and we'd all kind of huddle around them and open them up one at a time and look at them and try to drool, and then hope the the uh, rule was that smoking pipes was that a pipe had to be offered to consumers, be, uh, to customers before it was available for purchase by employees. So we'd all we'd all sit there and try to try to figure out which ones we wanted to put up first and which ones we wanted to, you know, which ones did we want to talk up and which ones did we want to talk down because we might want it. <laughs> uh, which ones did we want to try to not put on the website? But no, it was everything. It was the customer always came first. And uh, I saw a lot of pipes leave that I cried about them leaving, but I knew they had to go. Yeah. Yeah. I bet that would be uh quite an interesting experience just to see that many um, high-end pipes, not to mention that many estates from just all over the place. It was really, uh, I really didn't understand the uh, the high-end pipes until you really get to, you really sit down with an artisan-made pipe. Um, Teddy Knudsen, Tokotomi, Anytime the anytime a shipment would come from the Eversons, uh, you start looking at those pipes and you really understand the flow and the lines and the balance and the amount of cuts and processes that go into making each one of those pipes. You know, you're paying you're paying good money for them, but you're getting anywhere between four to five days of that artisan's life. Yeah. Into that piece of wood, seventy-something uh, different measurements and processes involved in what Tokotomi just kind of does naturally, but he doesn't know that he does it. it. It's just a feel, and there's a lot of pipe makers out there that can make a really good pipe, but when you see a pipe being made by one of those masters. They really don't know what they're doing. It just comes out intrinsically, and it's just they have that. It's it's a gift. Mm -hmm. um, and I'll tell everybody else on your show that I won't tell on mine. I am just a huge fan of Smeo Sato's pipes. Oh yeah, almost an obsessed fan. Uh, just gorgeous, understated work and. 
attention to detail and they've got a for me they've got a rare smoking quality that just makes everything extra sweet interesting uh, and he only makes about 25 to 30 pipes a year so here I go again now I got Disney pipes and I'm and I anytime I can afford one and see one that I like I want Sato pipes and there's not a whole bunch of those out there either so yeah yeah for sure if they're if there was something more obscure to collect, I would probably find a way to collect it. <laughs> um, tell me about, let's see, so was SmokingPipes.com the last thing, the last job that you had prior to uh, moving over to Brigham? Yeah, and and as Dan Moore, my boss at Brigham, tells me, <laughs> you seem to move jobs just before they figure out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, again, I was I was really lucky in that uh, Brigham came looking for me, and I really do I, I enjoy the the customer the consumer side of the business. The wholesale side, where I get to create product, is really where I'm really where I'm more comfortable. Mm-hmm. So they came to me. They wanted to open up a wanted to open up a U.S. office so that they could. So that we can deal directly with U.S.-based customers without having to ship through customs and all that stuff. Um, so we opened up a much smaller version of the Brigham office in Toronto. We opened it up here in Concord, North Carolina, four and a half miles from my house. Uh, in the morning, it takes me about six minutes because I've got one traffic light and it's a right turn. Wow. Uh, Sometimes I have to slow down because there's one rooster that likes to go out to the side of the road, and I don't want to scare him as I'm going by. Um, today, when I was driving over here, I had to slow down because there was a couple of vultures that were doing that were taking care of uh, taking care of some roadkill. Wow, that's uh, that's great. Uh, but we've been in this area for 12 years. Uh, it's it's been a great area to raise a family compared to the San Fernando Valley where. Yeah, there's a murder every day in Los Angeles. I think there was two murders in Cabarrus County, North Carolina, last year. Wow. Uh, Did you know him? And one of them was one of them was somebody from out of town, so we didn't care. <laughs> uh, so, um, all right, tell okay, tell me about Brigham. It's it's established 1906. Is it still pretty much family owned, or or how does that work? Yeah, Mike Brigham is the. Uh, is the owner. He is the uh, third generation. Um, the Brighams were immigrants to Canada in the ni- in the nineteen hundreds, and they started a little uh, storefront tobacco shop and making their own pipes there. Then, in the nineteen thirties, they patented the Brigham system, uh, which I'd sold Peterson systems before, so I understood a little bit about a system pipe mm-hmm. and. The, the Brigham system is just a it's a unique idea of a way to extend the uh, uh, to extend the smoke inside the shank and extend its contact with raw wood. So in, as opposed to a Canadian pipe that's you know, got a four and a half five six inch long shank, mm-hmm. now you've got a billiard that's five and a half, six inches long, but it's 
the smoke is exposed to raw wood inside the shank and inside the stem for three and a half, four inches. And that's because so of that an raw. insert, right? Yeah, it's a uh, it's a little metal. Uh, it's a metal. Uh, it's a little maple dowel that is hollowed out to two and a half millimeters. So it slides inside of our extra long tenons. We still make the tenons, and we still make the uh, the maple inserts or the the filters, as they're incorrectly called. Um, we still make those in Toronto to our specs. And that just the smoke just passing through that that little raw wood allows all the uh, allows all the moisture to just be attracted to it. It helps cool down the smoke. Uh, it does a really good job of taking the edge off of a somewhat hot burning or a little bit of a bitter blend. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then after anywhere between fifteen to twenty bowls, depending on what kind of tobacco you're smoking. You take out the you take out the dowel and you throw it away and you put a new one in. The new ones cost you cost the the consumer about fifty cents a piece. So and you're getting twenty bowls on average out of those. Wow. And when you take that out, you get a whole new clean almost draft hole inside the pipe. Right. So you've really just kind of cleaned and rejuvenated your pipe completely. Very interesting. So when's the first time how long have they been doing this the insert system? Has it has that been going around for a long time? It was patented in 1935, 34. Wow. So I've been doing it for a long uh, time. Yeah, yeah, and it's the same. It's the same technology, uh, except about six years ago they switched from a uh, from an aluminum tenon to a Delrin tenon. The uh, Delrin tenon is a lot more heat tolerant than the aluminum is. Mm-hmm. And they also found out that if you sat down on the pipe, the aluminum would break the shank. Now, if you accidentally sit down on the pipe, the Delrin breaks. We replace tenons for free, but we charge to replace shanks. Yeah. Uh, and then the the aluminum kind of a, worked as a bit of a radiator to to keep the moisture built up around it. So, and the Delrin's just much more much more tolerant and. Every most every manufacturer pipe maker uses Delrin tenons. Yeah, yeah, I use Delrin in, in my stuff too, and uh, which is something that I learned from Todd Johnson. So yeah, there's a lot of folks out there making Delrin tenons. Um, was do you have a Brigham? Um, how many Brighams do you have in your personal collection? Quite a few, I'm guessing. Oh, at home. Oh, that's part of the. One of the part of the problem with me working with pipes, I've got a part time I've got a part timer that works here, and I taught him how to do the quality control inspection on the pipes mm-hmm. because he can do them a whole lot faster. Because every time I see one come through that is really coolly shaped, has nice grain, whatever, I start sitting there drooling at it, and I have pipe love with it. Right. Uh, I've bought about uh, eight of those that I got pipe love with mm-hmm. uh, and I've been given three others um, yeah three came from three were given to me by the office in Toronto and then there was one when I was in Italy with the 
the factory was making, we were visiting the factory in Italy and they were making a pipe and I looked at it and I said, oh my God, that's gorgeous. I want that one. Let me know when that one's done. And he said, okay, well, we'll finish it up for you this afternoon. So he just gave it to me. Wow. How cool. Um, yeah, so I've got a few. Um, most of the time when I'm, when I'm smoking my, when I smoke my Brigham's, if I'm only going to, because I'm anal retentive about cleaning out the shanks in between each one of the bowls and doing all that stuff, mm-hmm. uh, if I'm going to smoke, if I'm going to take one pipe with me out for the day, I might take my one Brigham and you know, I might take a Brigham and two or three inserts with me and swap them out in between bowls so that way I get a whole dry, a whole new dry shank and draft hole mm-hmm. in between each one without having to do my cleaning routine. Interesting. Um, if I'm taste testing some stuff, which I know I, I I said that word, but I have been doing some of that lately, um, I'll I'll smoke one of my Brigham's because that way if I you know, I can clean it out real easily. Uh, the new McClellan Stave Aged stuff, the Virginia, the straight Virginia, for uh, Christmas instead of smoking in the house with a Virginia Perique. I was smoking that in the house with one of my Brigham's and it just took the edge off of the uh, aromatic for me and gave me a good gave me a good clean smoke. Uh, Very cool. So you got me sold on Brigham's. I've never I've never actually purchased one before. Let me let me ask you, are they all system pipes with the with the insert? Current current production, anything that says Brigham is a system pipe. Period. Okay. Uh, there was a while, there was for a little bit a time when they were making a Brigham Platinum series, which didn't have a system in it, it was just a tendon mortise. Mm-hmm. Uh, now we also import from Italy, we import uh, the Lorenzetti Emperor series, that's a 9mm filter with an adapter for those that want a 9mm and a classic Italian styling. Mm-hmm. Uh, we import a line of pipes called Capri which comes in anything from a basket pipe that'll retail for $30 and goes all the way up into church wardens for $80, $90. And those are just traditional Italian-styled um, tendon mortise pipes, no filter whatsoever. So we've, we tried to make it simple. If it's a Brigham, it's it's got the system in it. Cool. Uh, Nine-millimeter stuff. We've got the Italian, uh, the Italian design stuff. Try to make it as easy as possible for everybody and not confuse anybody. Yeah. Uh, my my Brigham pipes. If I'm just smoking my my regular standby tobaccos, um, I'll take the filter or take the tube out and smoke it without the tube, and the pipe smoke just fine. Mm-hmm. That was my next question. If you ever if you ever smoked it without the uh, system, or if you always kept the system in. Now, most of the time when I'm when I'm smoking my Virginia and Virginia Periques, because I've got um, I've got more tobacco than my wife thinks I need, but I have much less than I want. <laughs> and it's most of the stuff that I'm smoking now. I've been aging for about five six years, and when I open the can, I let it dry down a little bit anyway. So I really don't have a moisture issue, nor do I have any fresh or harshness to it. So just take the tube out and smoke the pipe with the pipe cleaner, my normal pipe smoking method. Mm-hmm. Cool. Um, and then use my Everclear and keep it clean in between smokes. 
Where can my listeners buy Brigham Pipes? At their favorite tobacconist. Um, I, obviously, I was real lucky. I, when I left smoking pipes, I told, I told Sykes, I said, I've got good news and I've got bad news for you. But the good news is you don't have to pay me anymore and you don't have to, I won't be drinking all the coffee in the office anymore. And the bad news is now you're going to have to, I'm going to have to sell you stuff and you're going to have to buy product from me. So I'm going to become your customer. <laughs> you're going to be a customer of mine. But he laughs. So smoking pipes, um, cup of Joe's, pipesandcigars.com, Ewan Reese. Uh, I think we've got 90, 90 brick and mortar stores around the country that carry them. Wow. Great. Um, Canadian retailers. If they've got any pipes, they've all got Brigham's in them. Um, we're working on uh, that's the, the other benefit to being in the United States and, and me was I was able to get us into South Korea. We're working on Japan. We've got a couple of couple of guys in China that are buying pipes from us. Uh, hopefully going to get Eastern Europe going with some Brigham pipes. So Very cool. Brigham's becoming a global brand. Absolutely. Well, it's, it sounds awesome, and I'm I'm excited to uh, uh, get one of these Bergen pipes myself, and I'll report back. That sounds really cool. I I didn't know much about them. All I knew basically was that they were a uh, a Canadian brand that had been around for a while. Um, so this is all really good and interesting stuff. Very cool. You know what I what I think is fun is I'm even your pipes. I didn't know much about your pipes because when I go to a pipe show. I'm pretty much focused on doing my selling. Um, thankfully and sadly, though, when we were at the Kansas City Pipe Show last June, it mm -hmm. wasn't really busy. Mm -hmm. So I got a chance to walk around and see a whole bunch of stuff, and I got to see your stuff and was like, man, there's somebody that's doing something really fun and creative and functional all at the same time. Well, thank you. Uh, kind of reminded me of my Disney pipe collection and the Haunted Mansion a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I, I love that kind of Haunted Mansion vibe, definitely. And I like somebody that doesn't take themselves too serious, because if you're not having fun in this world, then you know what? Hop off, there's another one coming along where you can be grumpy. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, man, thank you so much for uh, spending the time out of your busy schedule to uh, chat with me today, man. It, Brian, it has been really awesome, and, and I feel like we really... Um, even though we've gone through almost your complete history of pipes, I, I feel like we still have a lot to talk about. So I hope you'll join me again on some future podcasts. You know what I'd like to do is, uh, besides the fact that I want to let everybody know on, on, on you, on your podcast, that I listen to every one of your episodes, um, you're the only other pipe related podcast out there that's a, that I actually listen to. Um, you know, I'd like to have you on my show and well, let's just, do, let's do it this way. I'll do a full, we'll do a full interview of you on my show and we'll keep in touch and we'll, uh, bring you back for regular segments there too. Absolutely. Sounds cool, man. So everybody that's listening, if you've heard this podcast, always going to be on my show, uh, at the same time, and you'll hear me ask him all kinds of questions. 
So go check out pipesmagazine.com and you'll be able to see um, all of the different episodes there. And you can actually listen to them on the site or you can also subscribe in iTunes, correct? Yeah, we've uh, thankfully Kevin's been really good at getting us on iTunes. Uh, we just got approved for uh, Stitcher Radio, mm-hmm. which I'm not sure exactly what it is, but it comes standard on some Ford and Lincoln cars now. Um, you got and we've got it on uh, Podkicker, which is an Android app that I use to listen to listen to uh, podcasts on. And yeah, we've uh, we've managed to spread it out around the around all the different podcast servers. So I mean, obviously the easiest way is to listen to it directly from the site, and then that way you don't have to download anything. Yeah. Well, that's awesome, and uh, I would I would like to really urge my listeners to go over there and check it out. If you haven't already, you probably already have, but just in case you haven't, um, again, that's pipesmagazine.com, and there's a ton of stuff over there, but I want you to especially check out um, Brian's podcast over there, the radio show, and there's a number of episodes for you to listen to, but um, uh, just to give you an idea, you know, Brian does things very differently from what maybe you would expect it's a lot of fun it's crazy there's some really good um intros outros little inserts that that are like um old advertising you know crazy stuff that i would not normally expect from a podcast so it was they're a lot of fun to listen to so go check them out that's pipesmagazine.com and uh check out the radio show over there very cool with mr brian levine brian thank you so much man Thank you. I look forward to uh, turning the tables on you and getting questions out of you. Absolutely. All right, take it easy, pal. Thanks much. And that was my chat with Brian Levine. What a history that guy has in pipes. Brian's a very friendly, very funny guy, and I really appreciate his sense of humor, especially when I get to see him at shows. Just, Just really hilarious. How about that Disney pipe collection, too? How cool is that? I just, I'm a huge Disney fan. And to know that he's got, like, the biggest Disney collection, pipe collection in the world is is, uh, is just awesome. So go check out Brian's very entertaining radio show over at PipesMagazine.com. You will dig it. I promise that. This podcast was made possible by the very friendly, very helpful guys and gals over at pipesandcigars.com. Check them out. You will love them for their selection. You will keep coming back for their service. Hey, while you're there, if you do a search for Oli, you will be able to spot which monstrosity pipes they have for sale. Most all my monstrosity pipes are put out in numbered limited edition sets. I'm a collector, so I understand how fun that is to collect within limited edition sets. I just love that stuff. There are some there now, right now, as I'm recording this. You should go check them out. So, will I ever make a Cobunculus series with real lynx bones from Alaska, like the ones that are available right now over at PipesAndCigars.com? No. So grab them while you can. There's only there's only a small a small amount left. That's just not going to happen again. Will there ever be any more? Beastie series pipes with hand-carved teeth made from mammoth ivory? Of course not. The incredible smokers you've heard me talk about from the 50-piece demon series? They have three left. 
Will there be more Demon Series pipes? Made of really, really old wood? Of course not. No. Time is of the essence, my friend. Grab one and let me know what you got. Lots of big things planned for 2013 over here at oompal.com. Deep beneath the Oom Palace in the Oom Labs, I'm very busy making pipes. Some of the most unique creations you will ever see will crawl from the labs this year. Guaranteed. Many more podcasts coming to you as well. Sign up for my email newsletter by sending your full name to oli1 at mac.com. That's O-L-I-E, the number one, at mac.com. Or just click on the Write to Us button that's right there at the bottom left of the homepage over at umpal.com. Follow me on Instagram if you do that. I am over there at OliPS3. That's O-L-I-E, P as in Paul, S as in Sam, the number three. Check me out. Follow me there. A lot of times I post uh, as I'm making a pipe. I'll show you as I'm drilling it. I'll show you uh, as I'm shaping it. I'll show you how it's turning out. So uh, that's kind of cool. Follow me over on Twitter, at Baron Oli. Wherever you follow me, I will be there. How's that? This is Oli with Oompal.com wishing you very good luck deciding which beastly monstrosity will be next in your collection. 